0: Hi, it's Brad Leach here. I'm a speaker for the upcoming Biotechals Clinical Mastery Masterclass held on the 9th of February,
1: where I'll be sharing the latest advancements, protocols, and evidence based interventions for increased intestinal permeability. So, if you'd like some tools to improve your confidence in the
0: management of intestinal permeability in your clinical practice, find out more by visiting biotechals.com.au. And welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence based, integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopristi, and with us on the line today is Sophia Gerontakos, a naturopath and researcher who completed her honours postgraduate degree by research in the field of adaptogens. She'll be taking us through some of her research in this area and help improve her understanding of these herbs and how we can use them to improve the health of our patients. Welcome to FX Medicine, Sophia thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Adrian. It's great to be here.
0: Terrific. Before we get started talking about adaptogens, can you tell us what are adaptogens and what are some of the commonly used ones?
1: Yeah, certainly. So adaptogens are quite wonderful medicinal plants that have um, a normalizing effect on various different body systems, specifically where stress or chronic stress is involved. So they have a non-specific effect of increasing resistance to stressors, whether they be physical, chemical or biological. Um, so they essentially reduce the negative impact of chronic stress by having a normalizing inter-systems effect within the body. Um, so some of the most commonly used adaptogens amongst Australian herbalists would be probably Eleutherococcus. I mean, that's definitely my most frequently used adaptogen. And withania, um, ania, mm-hmm. and rhodiola. Um, but there's mm-hmm. also quite a few others. That's not an exhaustive list.
0: Terrific. Yeah, I know there's a, there's a whole range of adaptogens, and yeah, the ones you've mentioned there are, are certainly quite popular amongst practitioners, and uh, mm. in terms of uh, countries that have traditionally used adaptogens, I mean, what countries have used them and and what are they typically being used for?
1: Many of the adaptogens that we tend to be familiar with here in our herbal medicine practice um, come from countries such as Russia, India, and parts of East Asia. I know from my research that adaptogens do have a long tradition of use in Russia for things like improving physical performance and stamina for stress adaptation and also for influenza prophylaxis, amongst other things. But I think they would be Mm -hmm. the main things that they've traditionally been used for.
0: And so um, I know that obviously those countries are using them and now um, certainly in Australia and uh, they're becoming a lot more popular, aren't they?
1: Yes, definitely, and I think I mean amongst herbalists, they've always been very popular, but now they're probably starting to become more widely known outside of the herbalist community as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you see them, you know, you see a lot of kind of uh, you know, supplement companies and 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 online companies selling uh, different adaptogens and and the virtues of the different adaptogens. So they're certainly increasing uh, in popularity. And um, oh, definitely, you've done some. Really interesting work in the area of adaptogens. So, how did you become interested in adaptogens, and why? Did, and you've obviously done some research in the area. So, why did you choose to do further studies in this area?
1: Yeah, I I did. So as as a naturopath and herbalist in clinical practice, I was using adaptogens a lot, obviously. Um, And I mean, there are not many people out there who are not under some kind of stress, whether it be physical, mental or emotional. So it's quite hard not to prescribe adaptogens, really, when you've got these fabulous medicines that help with a wide range of stress effects. And adaptogens actually help in many and various clinical presentations indirectly by helping the body adapt to stress. for example, you might have someone come in who's ready to become pregnant and start a family but they haven't had a regular menstrual cycle for over twelve months, and you give them adaptogens and things start to regulate again and the cycle's restored and that's you know that can be without even doing anything to directly with hormones. So, or another example is people struggling with mental health who also respond really well with improved mood and energy and things like that. So, that's how my curiosity peaked into adaptogens because I was prescribing them with all these different people with different issues and watching their health Mm -hmm. turn around. And I thought, you know, how are these actually working and why, why are these medicines not more widely understood and used? So, that's when I sort of came up with the idea of doing some research on them and trying to develop our understanding of them and ultimately try and help more people with them because there's plenty of research out there now showing how stress impacts multiple body systems and has really negative impacts on health. We know that. So we do need more healthcare support in the area of stress, especially with modern day lifestyles where it's just not always possible to live a stress-free life or lifestyle. So that's, I guess, that's where my, my interest peaked in my clinical practice,
0: mm-hmm. just by watching them work. Okay, and so then you ended up um, going back and doing more studies in the area after after working as a naturopath for a few years.
1: Yes, that's right. So I actually ended up doing an honours degree by research in adaptogens where I actually looked at, um, I did a review of clinical trials to try and work out how they've actually been measured in studies in Mm -hmm. humans. And then I also went out and spoke to different groups of naturopaths to understand their their experience and perceptions of adaptogens about how they work and where they've acquired their knowledge from and their understandings. And then I sort of pulled that into pulled that together into a more comprehensive body of work, I suppose.
0: You did, uh, I know that uh, I've got a couple of your papers here that you've published, so well done, congratulations on that. And it looks like they were quite recently published, so brilliant. Yeah, thank you. Um, and you did, well, let's go to the, one of the papers which uh, you, you wrote on. And uh, the first one of them was that you did a review of adaptogens, uh, particularly their use in Russia. So can you tell tell us a bit about what you found from your work in this area with the, with the research that was done in Russia?
1: Yes, that was really interesting. So uh, it was actually Russian researchers who coined the term adaptogen in the 1940s and that was while they were mm-hmm. looking for substances that would improve physical and mental stamina and endurance in harsh working environments basically. And then during the time of the Soviet Union, um, the USSR, they undertook a targeted research directive on adaptogens and one of the herbs they focused on was Eleutherococcus, um, otherwise known as Siberian ginseng in common terms. Mm -hmm. And there was quite a lot of work there on its effects on physical and mental performance on seasonal illnesses like colds and flus both treatment and prevention, and on things like hypertension, cancer, and pregnancy.
0: So as I was reading your paper, I was thinking, one of the things I was thinking was, uh, how did you translate it? Can you speak and read Russian?
1: No, I definitely can't. So it was quite an adventure. (laughs) I I went to Russia and I actually, I have a colleague, um, a professor and mentor, if you will, uh, from Mm -hmm. St. Petersburg. He's a professor at one of the pharmaceutical universities there. Um, so he invited me over um, to work with some master's students over there and uh-huh. together we went into the library archives, we searched and we found these books that contained the articles, the studies, and between the the two of us, so they were speaking Russian and English and I was speaking English, and with mm-hmm. the help of a couple of different applications, we translated all the articles together over about three weeks of intense study, I guess.
0: Wow, that must have been an amazing effort! And, yeah, um, it
1: was pretty amazing, and some yeah. stunning, stunning libraries as well. We had we were really lucky to have access to the archives and to be able to just be in that space as well.
0: And I know I remember reading a book several years ago uh, on it was called the the Rodiola Revolution, and they were talking about the same thing um, you know, in terms of some of the research that was done on Rodiola. Oh is that what they've done they've, ch- they've done research on the plus other adaptogens too?
1: Yes, they were interested in several adaptogens. Rhodiola is another one that's there's a lot of research on. Um mm-hmm. because as I said they're examining substances that would improve physical performance. Um, And so Eleuthorococcus is one that they focused on because it's an adaptogen that was recognised in the pharmacopoeia of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they ordered a research directive into herbs that were recognised in the pharmacopoeia, and one of those herbs was Eleuthorococcus. So there's a high volume of studies looking at that particular herb.
0: And when were they conducting this research? What years were they doing this research?
1: Uh, this was in between nineteen sixty and nineteen eighty, or just after nineteen eighty, it's concluded.
0: And so I you know, from reading your paper, that seems as though there's a huge range of different conditions they were uh investigating uh for. So can you tell us a bit about some of the areas that some of the research was in?
1: Yeah. A lot of the studies were done with healthy volunteers, so people without any specific conditions to examine physical and mental stamina under different conditions and also looking at incidence or prophylaxis of colds and flus and seasonal illnesses, um, immune reactivity, looking at work capacity and cognitive function in some of them and also some smaller studies looking at things like the effects of a lithococcus on uh, vision and hearing. And then... Uh, There was a few other ones looking at it in various different types of cancer, so given in conjunction to chemotherapy Mm. and radiation, and it did seem to really improve quality of life and tolerance to chemo and radiation and just offset some of the side effects. Um, And then there was a very large study of over 4,500 pregnant women looking at birth outcomes and just... Um, a few on the cardiovascular system as
0: well and hypertension. And so was the research kind of then indicating what did it say that there was generally positive for a lot of those conditions, was it?
1: Yeah, definitely. For uh, physical performance, it was definitely positive. Cognition was a little bit different. It was quite variable and it looks like it's really quite dose dependent with cognition. Um, especially where potentially a smaller acute dosing regimen might be more effective than larger doses. Um, but with influenza prophylaxis, it looked very positive um, and mm-hmm. also with regulating things like cardiovascular system and nervous system, so that's all sort of tying back into physical performance again and, work, and improving work capacity.
0: Okay. And so how were they administering it? Was it through a liquid or was it through capsules or how, how did they do it?
1: It was actually often taken in juice or tea or with the addition of sugar. So I haven't been able to completely determine whether that was to mask the flavour or if it no. actually was because there was one or two studies alluding to um, that it might have an effect on blood sugar. So it opened okay. up a bit of another question there regarding how or why they were administering it in that way, which I'm sort of still digging into a little bit. But wow. the dosage really varied between across the studies between the 0.5 mil and 8 mil a day of a liquid extract, and it was pretty much always a liquid extract.
0: Well, wow. And you're saying with the cognition, uh, the lower doses were often better than the high doses, was it?
1: Yeah, it looks that way. It's not conclusive, but... Mm -hmm. Definitely in some studies, a lower dose, there were some studies that gave two mil twice a day where it had no effect. And then other studies where a lower dose like 0.5 mil was actually more effective. So, um, But I think, yeah, definitely more research is needed in that area to determine the best dosage.
0: And would they administer it once a day, twice a day? How would they administer it?
1: mostly twice a day so most of the mm. studies would do um one to two meals or actually between one and four meals twice daily um for up to for between 10 and 30 days often and there was actually some other studies that spanned over a number of years up to 6 years and those were the ones looking mm. at morbidity rates and influenza and so they would generally take a course of Eleutherococcus every year for say 2 months per year of a twice daily dose
0: Okay. And so would they use it um, just for short periods or certain periods throughout the year rather than ongoingly use it?
1: Yeah, it did vary across studies and depended what they were, the outcomes they were looking for. So if it was, if they were looking at reducing rates of influenza and seasonal illnesses, then that would be a a course for, say, one to two months per year for a number of years. Um, And then the rest of the year, they didn't take anything. Mm. But then in other studies, it was just looking at one to two months of. Twice daily dose in say things like physical performance.
0: Wow! And did they use it at all acutely? You know, was there any benefits associated with just acute use, one to you know single use?
1: Yes, most of the studies that used single use were in cognition, and it does look to be quite positive. It used in an acute once once or twice off dose for improving cognition. Or cognitive function
0: so it's really then I mean obviously you know, it's great that you're able to put all this t- information together and and you know really summarize some of the findings for us because that's quite amazing and uh, mm. I suppose the you know w- what it indicates is that there's a whole range of conditions that it could be used for but we still don't know you know optimally how to use it and uh, how often but it Potentially, you know, lower doses could be better than higher doses. Then, and and rather than so, more is not necessarily better for certain conditions. Then,
1: that's right. Yeah, and I think that's the really interesting thing about it is it does appear to be quite dose specific or dose dependent, especially in various different areas like cognition. And I think um, from a herbalist perspective, that sort of does align with herbal medicine practice, where you really have to get the dose right for the individual as well. So there's, mm-hmm. there's always a few different things that you need to look at when you're thinking about dosing herbal medicines with different individuals.
0: Now, the other area you wrote a couple of papers on I, I was reading, uh, so you did a, a critical review, um, I think it was, was it last year, published last year on the research on adaptogens and as you mentioned earlier, some of the perceptions from practitioners about adaptogens. Can you tell us a bit about your research and what you found in that area?
1: Yeah, the the review that was published last year was looking at clinical trials reporting on herbal medicines with an adaptogenic action examining physical and mental endurance or physiological stress adaptation in healthy individuals. So we actually, with that criteria, we found 24 studies that were looking at 12 different herbs and Some of those herbs weren't actually herbs that we might commonly think of as adaptogens in our practice, but others were quite popular ones like Panax ginseng, Rhodiola, um, Bacopa, luthrococcus, and uh, Shizandra, and also, Mm -hmm. I think, uh, Withania. So the purpose of the review was to identify domains which have been used in clinical trials to measure the effects of adaptogens, so to try and work out how are people actually measuring what adaptogens do. So Mm -hmm. what we found um, overall is that articles reported three broad categories of outcome measures, and that was cognitive tests, mood measures, and biological measures, things like blood pressure, heart rate, and cortisol. And most of those studies used a combination of those measures or all three of them together. So <clears throat> I think um, there was actually relative consistency in outcome measures in terms of those three broad categories, but within the categories there was great difference in heterogeneity because they used different tests you know with cognitive tests they'd used all the studies had used a right, wide range of different um, CDR batteries mm-hmm. and variations and adaptations of those tests so it it did make it really hard to draw conclusions as to what is if anything's been consistently used or what might need to be consistently measured when measuring adaptogenic activity
0: yeah i mean i uh I'm doing some research at the moment on um, a couple of different herbs, and, and one of them is Withania, with regards to its its impact on cognitive performance. And we're doing a whole range of computer based tests that we're using, and, and they're great right. um, as an outcome measure. But the, the thing I'm really struggling with is is going okay. Well, all right. you So you can press a button quicker, um, and so your reaction times faster when you see uh, some figure on the screen, on arrow or on a screen, but. Uh, what we also need to really look at is well what 's a real world applicability of that? I mean how much does it actually translate into better cognitive performance, better memory um, in in the real world and that 's just something i 'm just kind of struggling with and trying to find a really good measure for cognitive performance and uh, yeah and that 's just the, hopefully as we expand the area and we 'll be able to understand more about. Uh, adaptogens and specific adaptogens, because obviously some of them could work on improving verbal memory and others could be better from a visual memory perspective. So, and I'm interested by, you know, obviously what you've mentioned with the Eleutherococcus, some of the work that they've done on vision and hearing. So that's potentially could have an impact in terms of cognitive performance too, by just improving your vision and hearing.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's certainly something to look deeper into. Um, and in with the vision they they often looked at color perception as well, so that was okay. something that was quite interesting and then hearing this the studies looking at hearing suggested that it might improve hearing where people have been under um, working conditions where there 's been like a lot of loud noise, so it might prevent uh, okay. damage to the damage to hearing, yeah um yep but not so useful in acute conditions of the inner ear. So more mm-hmm. of a prevention, I think, than treating hearing conditions.
0: Now, with the the paper that you wrote on a review when you, when you critically evaluated all the different adaptogens, what was the overall quality of the research like?
1: It was a little bit variable. Um, mm-hmm. We used the... JADAD scale to assess the quality and quite a lot of them had a moderate score on that because they had omitted details in reporting, some some essential Mm -hmm. details in reporting. So it wasn't always excellent. I think there was about three out of the 24 studies that had a superior quality of reporting. So that's not, um, not a lot. So, there was there was definitely some limitations, additional limitations to the review from that sense because the quality of reporting wasn't excellent in some of them.
0: And which countries were they um, conducting most of the studies?
1: If I recall correctly, it was mostly USA and some okay. from Australia, I
0: think. Mm. Oh, terrific. All right. Okay. So... We've got then these adaptogens that potentially have uh, far-reaching effects, as uh, potentially could be beneficial for a whole range of different conditions. Um, how do they work? <laughs> I know it's a, not a simple question, but uh, how do you think they work?
1: <laughs> I, it's definitely not a simple question, Adrian, but I, I <laughs> guess <laughs> the most basic and simplified understanding of adaptogens is that they have a regulatory effect on the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis, otherwise known as the HPA axis. But Mm -hmm. that really is only the tip of the iceberg, pharmacologically speaking, on how they work. Naturopathically speaking, I think, and from what I've heard from the naturopaths in my research, that they have a regulatory effect on various different body systems that perhaps Mm -hmm. works via the HPA axis. But also different adaptogens will work in different ways and have an affinity for different body systems. For example, some might have more beneficial effects on the digestive system. Others have a real affinity with the immune system or the liver area. Um, So you can really match the adaptogen to the patient and the ways and body systems, which stress impacts that individual. But in terms of... um, how they work. That's a lot more complicated.
0: Okay. All right. So we probably think that it impacts on the HPA axis. So does that mean um, for people with a hyperactive um, HPA response so potentially too much cortisol circulating, it can kind of lower cortisol. And then for people with a hypoactive system, it would potentially increase cortisol to kind of lead to a normalizing effect?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the adaptogen. Uh, they mm-hmm. they don't all work the same way. Um, so and also you have to take into account the circumstances. I think I know that there is some research uh, where it shows that adaptogens decrease cortisol. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to, but you also have to take into account the circumstances in which cortisol is being decreased. For example, if you're looking at people working under stressful conditions, which a lot of the Russian research was doing. Then yes, it would make sense for the effect to be cortisol reduction because it would make sense for cortisol to be elevated in those conditions. But perhaps in other circumstances, that might not be the case. So mm-hmm. potentially they can have a regulatory effect. I, I do know from my clinical experience that you do need to be a bit careful about your choice of adaptogen, depending on where the person is at on the spectrum of fatigue, adrenal function, and or hyperarousal. So. Mm-hmm. If a person is at a severe state of exhaustion or burnout, you might not actually immediately prescribe an adaptogen. You might first need to more gently build them back up with things like nerve and nutritives and then bring adaptogens in a little bit further down the track when they're starting to get a little bit of energy and vitality back. So mm-hmm. I think adaptogens are actually best utilised before a person reaches extreme burnout or exhaustion to actually prevent that from happening, which is generally when and why you'd want to be decreasing cortisol. But, okay. yeah, there might be exceptions to the rule where the right dose at the right time in combination perhaps with other herbs like nervines could have a regulatory effect certainly.
0: Okay. All right. So so typically when people are experiencing kind of that of that high stress, um, when they're probably having elevated cortisol, that's where then adaptogens could really kind of, or, and, and or obviously you need to choose the type of adaptogen, but that's potentially where they can really have a positive effect then.
1: Yes, that's really where they come into their own. That's, mm. that's the key, key time to get mm. in there with adaptogens.
0: And obviously they also have anti-inflammatory effects and they're potent antioxidants, and many of them target mm. different neurotransmitters. And so you have a whole range of different mechanisms mm-hmm. of action, then,
1: yes, definitely. So animal and laboratory studies have identified a wide range of key molecular targets and regulatory targets, um, you know, the obvious ones being stress hormones and cortisol neuropeptide y and mediators of that stress response. um, but there were over three thousand genes identified as being regulated by adaptogens, so and and new, numerous different pathways relating to neuroinflammation, melatonin, mm-hmm. opioids, um, endo, enteroendocrine cells, and many others. So that's what I say. Where when the HPA regulation of the HPA access is really only the tip of the iceberg. Um, with what they do pharmacologically speaking, they really have multi-target
0: effects. Absolutely. So that's a. You know, I can see why the research is so difficult because you've got all these. You know, if you're targeting, if you're looking at just one area, um, there's really a whole range of different uh, physiological systems that that adaptogens can can really target. And yeah, yeah, it might reduce cortisol, but it also might be via a whole bunch of other mechanisms that it might be impacting on. So that's that's right.
1: Good luck. Yeah. Good luck to yeah. the research.
0: Are you going to do more research in that area?
1: Um, look, the my. Adaptogen research is always bubbling away in the background, but I my more um primary focus has shifted a little bit uh in the field of naturopathy and public health um with actually with people with endometriosis. So I've shifted a little bit, but I I am okay. keeping the, the adaptogen work bubbling in the background, yes.
0: All right. So my um i mean'm as a clinical psychologist, my area is, is my interest is in the mental health side of things uh, and I'm interested in you know how adaptogens could potentially be used for different conditions so obviously so you mentioned that you've got somebody so if somebody's experiencing significantly high stress whether it be a, you know work related stress or, or study related stress, you've got all these different adaptogens that you can choose from. Um, Where do practitioners start? How do they kind of choose one over the other?
1: Okay, I think there are three main ways um, to sort of to start with using adaptogens for practitioners and that's obviously always firstly by studying the herbs from different contexts and with different teachers and mentors, Um, but Mm -hmm. also it's clinical experience. Once you've been prescribing herbs for a very long time, you get to know who they work for in what situations, what constitutions. Um, and which Mm -hmm. herbs are best avoided and which types of people as well. So that's really just clinical experience and practice. And and I heard that from the naturopaths in my research as well. They said that, you know, it is practice and there is an element of trial and error with not just Mm -hmm. adaptogens but herbal medicine practice in general, I suppose. Um, And it's also personal experience. You know, the only way to really get to know herbs is through using them and getting to know them personally as well. So. Those are the ways I would say.
0: Okay. All right. And so, somebody, um, yeah, when you say kind of cl- clinical experience, is it like if somebody's coming in with specific symptoms uh, that will then lead you to a particular adaptation over another? Is that how it kind of works for you? Or are you doing other assessments hmm. too?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, because stress affects different people in different ways and different body systems. So, I guess if someone who's, for example, they've come in and they're hyper vigilant, hyper aroused, jittery, you know, easily stressed um, type of person, I'd be very cautious about giving them a very stimulating adaptogen. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be going straight in with something like panax ginseng. Right. But yep. the, on the other hand, if you've got someone who's come in and they're quite lethargic, they're you know they're slow moving, lacking luster. Um, that's when I'd be thinking about giving them an adaptogen with a little bit more oomph. So, mm-hmm. but you know, you also assess other things like wh- which areas of their body are their weak spots, for example. Like, do they need liver support or do they need digestive support? Because no adaptogen is purely just an adaptogen. All adaptogens Mm -hmm. will do other things. So some of them are very good in their liver area. Others are really nice for um, repairing the intestines and things like that. So it just really depends on what type of support you feel this person needs.
0: And the more stimulating adaptogens, you mentioned uh, panicked ginseng. Are there others that are kind of a bit more stimulatory?
1: Um, I would consider rhodiola to be a bit more stimulating than others Mm -hmm. um and i i always have felt that rhodiola needs quite a low dose i've always felt like the recommended therapeutic dose is a little bit high and oftentimes Mm -hmm. um so i find that to be a stimulating herb and also uh, from a liver perspective i would Shizandra could be a little bit stimulating as well i would find but also Mm -hmm. it does have it does have that it's more regulatory, so not the most stimulating, mm-hmm. but yeah, you would sort of there's an element of caution there as well.
0: Yeah. and what about if um if you wanted something that's a little bit more calming, what would you kind of go for in that area?
1: Uh, I think withania is always a favourite for calming, um, yeah, and I even find that a can be if given in the right combination um with mm-hmm. because if if someone really needs calming I'm generally prescribing nervine herbs as well at the same time so yeah. we really in herbal medicine practice we're really capitalizing on synergy so we're using a combination of different herbs to have different effects and regulate things so but in terms of calming adaptogens I think withania is a
0: really beautiful one Is there anything that you've found from a sleep perspective to help people to fall asleep or stay asleep?
1: I do think Adaptogens can help with sleep through their mm-hmm. regulatory action, um, but I would also be giving the the nervines as well to calm the nervous system down. But then, when when it comes to sleep, you're also generally doing other things like you know sleep hygiene and lifestyle tweaking yeah, lifestyle absolutely. to sort of help them remove what the barriers to getting a good night's sleep.
0: Yeah, that's something we've also you know always got to be careful about just trying to. F- Use a pill to uh, fix somebody's problem, or, or a liquid just to fix somebody's problem. The obviously we need to consider the whole context and what's going on for the, for that individual. That's um, right, And do yes. you do you generally give it as a liquid, or do you are you using it as capsules? How do you use it?
1: Yeah, I do. Probably most often give it as a liquid, but if I'm more looking for something like. Um, longer-term immune support or something like that. I might use capsules, yep. um, but yep. probably most often I'm I'm using liquids because I do like blending herbs.
0: Okay. And um, what about uh, how many times a day would you generally get people to take it or at the particular times in the day they're better for people to take it?
1: The, for me, the most ideal way of taking a herbal medicine is three times a day. But mm-hmm. it's not always doable for people. So the probably the most common dosage regimen for me is twice daily, morning and night. Yeah. And I'll often, yeah. you know, they, they often have a digestive aspect to them too, so it's usually before meals.
0: And uh, duration of use, would you, you know, expect changes in the first few days for people or is it something that they need to kind of continue to use ongoingly?
1: Ah, uh, you definitely can see changes very quickly with adaptogens. they're They're quite amazing yeah. like that. um but also i I do use them longer term with some people as well, and even with myself, actually. I think that you yeah. definitely can prescribe them longer term. Um if I'm doing something for for many months, because if somebody's been in a chronic stress situation for years and years and you know it's not they might need support for a little while. Um, but if i so if I am doing something for many months, I do often have a little break, so I might give them a week off the medicine between each month of taking it, for example, yep. um, and then they can take it for even up to six months that way sometimes. but oh. I mean the goal is always to that they don't need to take something ongoing, but mm-hmm. it also depends on the circumstances as well
0: and what about uh tolerability you know were there any have you noticed any adverse effects that that people may experience from different different adaptogens?
1: Oh, occasionally, yeah, people can have you know idiosyncratic reactions to herbal medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, so occasionally that does happen. I, I can't say it's happened very often to me, but it can yeah. definitely happen. And I think that's one. One rationale for using single ingredients, um, and that's what one of my colleagues in Russia said to me. Actually, is that they only use single herbs because then they know what herb is having what effect. You know, and if they have a, the person has an adverse reaction, then and, and you've given them a mix of herbs, you don't actually know which herbs cause that. So yeah, that's their enough. rationale for using single ingredients, um, and mm. that's valid.
0: What about ages? What are your thoughts on? Um, do you see children?
1: I haven't seen a lot of children in my practice, but certainly you can prescribe herbs and adaptogens for children. And in some of the Russian studies, they were looking, they were um, performing the studies on children. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we have different formulations for dosage with children, of course. So it's a little bit, it won't be an adult dose.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're doing a study at the moment, you uh, on withania. We're looking at its effects on their cognitive performance. So children who are exhibiting kind of um, concentration problems, attention problems, they don't necessarily have ADHD. And we're looking at its effects on cognition in those kids and uh, also measuring outcomes like mood-related outcomes and seeing what impact it also has on their sleep. So uh, we're finding it's quite well tolerated and we're delivering it as gummies
1: okay yeah that's that's a good way to do it with children definitely
0: yeah yeah so it'll be interesting to see uh what uh, results we get from that with regards to uh its performance and cognition and so forth um
1: and i know there's a lot of
0: research done on withania so that's a quite a popular herb uh do you use that much in practice
1: Yes, I do. It's not my most common um commonly prescribed herb, but I do love Withonia. It's hard not to love it. Um yeah. but and especially, you know, with thyroid uh certain thyroid situations as well, it can be really nice. But it's it's just um for anxiety and stress it's it is hard to go past.
0: Yeah, everybody's got their uh, obviously the different ones. And as you said, I mean mm. so basically it seems as though unfortunately, you know, there's no uh recipe book uh, formula that people can uh, should go, okay, so someone is presenting with depression, I would give them this one. And someone is presenting mm. with stress, really needs to be uh, individualized, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. There's an art and a science to herbal prescription. And um, there's, there's definitely no formula that will work for every person. I think that's the beauty of herbal medicine as
0: well, Mm. and obviously that means means really having uh, as you you know you go out and practice and you start using more. It's really kind of using the experience of your colleagues too, and you and having good mentors who can kind of guide you initially on your way in that process. Definitely,
1: yeah. I think that's how I grew as a herbalist was by being in clinical practice with other experienced herbalists and and having Mm. that mentorship there. And I really recommend especially uh, new graduates to stay connected with your mentors. Mm.
0: All right. Well, I suppose then it sounds like um, the work you've done is great. It's really kind of illuminated some of the research and I really love the work uh, on some of the Russian work and being able to translate that. But unfortunately it sounds, or or fortunately it sounds like uh, we need to learn a lot more about these different adaptogens and there needs to be a lot more kind of research to help us understand how they work and who they would work for and how you should dosage and um, and obviously you have mentioned, you know, obviously clinical experience is, uh, is really imperative but obviously, you know, research can help guide us in some of that decision-making process. So
1: Definitely, uh, yeah. So I think my work is, it's very early work and I think it's brought up a lot more questions than it has answered but I think that's a good thing mm-hmm. as well. I think, you know, we need research to to determine what questions we actually need to be asking in future research, so... As yeah. There's lots of av- avenues that are open now, and um, you know every little contribution adds to the bigger picture. So it's always good to be able to add something, and and it's been really nice to be able to bring that research from Russia to the out to the broader scientific community as well. Because it's although it's you know fraught with limitations, it's still a very valuable mm-hmm. piece of evidence to show where we might want to direct our attention in future.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us today, Sophia, to help review our understanding of this important class of herbs, to help give us that overview of some really interesting history and how we can work with adaptogens to help offset stress and support both our mental and physical health. And thank you for all the work you've done and the research that you've done to help make herbs and naturopathic medicine more available to us. It's really quite an impressive accomplishment. Well,
1: thank you very much, Adrian, and um, thanks for having me on the show to have a little chat about it it's been really nice and it's always good to share share the work and open discussions about these things
0: thanks everyone for listening today don't forget that you can find all the show notes transcripts and other resources from today's episode at the fx medicine website i'm dr adrian OCresty and thanks for joining us we'll see you next time
1: podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.